Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figner. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Dan DiNicola. Dan is professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College. His research focuses in epistemology, the philosophy of education, theories of emotions, and ethics. His new book is titled Understanding Ignorance, The Surprising Impact of What We Don't Know. It's published by MIT Press. Now, epistemology is the area of philosophy that examines the phenomena of and related to knowledge. The traditional core questions include, how is knowledge different from lucky guessing, for example? Can knowledge be innate? Is skepticism a threat? And if it is, how should we counter it? And also, is it possible to know something simply on the basis of other persons say so? In the background of all of these traditional questions, however, is a broad concern that's not often explicitly addressed. That concern is with ignorance. Epistemology in its traditional forms studies the nature of knowledge for the purpose of trying to overcome or better address ignorance. However, as Dan argues in his new book, ignorance is not univocal. It comes in many forms, and it will need to be addressed in different ways. And perhaps surprisingly, some kinds of ignorance might actually be helpful for guiding inquiry. So, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin by greeting our guest. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm good. Great. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in Ohio. Um, I went to Ohio University as an undergraduate, and I arrived with lots of academic interests. Um, I was afraid at one point I was leading on a whole lot of different people as to what field I was going into. And um, I realized one day that what I liked about all of the different areas was their philosophical aspects. And so I became a philosophy major. And uh, I had wonderful teachers at Ohio University, people like Troy Oregon, Stanley Grayon, and others, and um, got very interested uh, in student government there and in the um, philosophy that was behind a liberal education. Um, I also got politically active. I was a uh, president of the student body there, and my uh, if if I'm uh, recalled for anything there, it was that uh, I called a student strike, which in the end shut the university for two weeks. Uh, that was that was not because of the Vietnam War, which was in that era, but because we went out in a sympathetic strike with uh, staff who um, had not received raises in a long time in the public system in Ohio. And um, uh, that 
sort of directed my education to my educational interests to think about um, education more broadly, more philosophically, and to integrate some thoughts about education with what I was majoring in, which was philosophy. So um, I was fortunate to get uh, a research fellowship to Harvard University for my graduate work. Um, those were the days in which um, you could get a National Defense Education Act fellowship because being a philosopher of education served the national defense. That's hard to imagine. Um, I ended up, though, at Harvard in a program, program which doesn't exist anymore, sadly, uh, it, that was joint between the Department of Philosophy in the School of Arts and Sciences and the Philosophy of Education program in the School of Education. And that program was created because uh, Israel Scheffler was a professor in with a foot in both camps there. Mm -hmm. And I went to study with him for master's and doctoral work. But it was a wonderful time at Harvard because I was also studying with people like John Rawls, like Lawrence Kohlberg, like uh, uh, in in uh, Willard Van Orman Quine uh, <laughs> and Burton Dreven and Robert Nozick showed up and uh, Martha Nussbaum was around the perimeter of my experience there and uh, so on and so forth. And um, I struggled when I first got there with um, – taking the style of philosophy that I was used to as an undergraduate into what was then a pretty crisp-edged uh, analytic department. That's a nice and, way of putting uh, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, and I, I worked with that, came out. Uh, I had to leave Harvard a little early because uh, they changed an arrangement which um, meant you could not um, have any supplementary employment uh, while you had a research fellowship. And I simply couldn't make it in Cambridge uh, that way. So I took a job at, uh, it was very late actually in the academic year, almost in the summer. And I saw an announcement for a job at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, a place I had never known anything about. I went there. I was very pleased with the setting and with the quality of faculty. Bruce Wavell, who was chairing the department there, had been the only undergraduate who was permitted to study with Wittgenstein at Cambridge. <laughs> and um, uh, so I stayed there, uh, got pulled into administration, became provost and was a dean for a while there and so on, chaired the department a bit, left there in 96 and came to Gettysburg as provost. So I actually have had 20 years of my career has been as a provost of the institution. I taught during that time, was tenured member of philosophy departments and so on, but it depressed my scholarship. Mm. Um, I took a visiting appointment at one period back at Harvard, and I have done some other things like that, but I could not produce the amount of scholarship I wanted. So when I left the administration here after about 11 years, um, I began full-time in the department here to work on scholarship and uh, have been thinking and working since then at Gettysburg, which is a wonderful place to do work with. I have good colleagues here, and uh, uh, it's a chance to 
release some of those scholarly energies and philosophy that I have been reading and thinking about for a while. Well, that's wonderful. May, may I ask you a, 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 a question about philosophy of education? Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the program, uh, um, the, the, the Israel Scheffler program, by the way, for those who might be listening who have never looked at uh, Scheffler's stuff in philosophy of education, it's very, very, very interesting and very good. Um, what do you make of, you know, philosophy of education used to be um, uh, a pretty major part of the discipline. It used to be a, a nice crossroads between epistemology, ethics, political philosophy, uh, metaphysics, uh, moral psychology. I mean, it, it, there used to be so much interesting work being done there. And then it, um, for reasons that I, I, I don't know, uh, it, it's kind of, it kind of fell, fell to the wayside. Do you have any, any thoughts about how that happened or why? Yeah, it's a very interesting and I think very sad story. Actually, I was quite disappointed even during my time there and shortly after that broadly the field in philosophy took philosophy of education to be um, a lesser discipline. If you published a, a book in philosophy of education, it would be shelved in bookstores with education, not, within, not with philosophy. And yet education, and whether you're talking about moral education or the epistemological dimensions, the political dimensions of education, these are serious philosophical questions that occur um, at the intersection of important issues in the field. And uh, I was quite disappointed in that. Um, uh, but even within the schools of education now, um, philosophy of education does not hold the position it used to have. It's almost as though we don't talk about aims anymore. We don't talk about the broader things. We're concerned about what we can assess. Uh, aims talk goes nowhere. Philosophical talk goes nowhere. And in the era of no child left behind and a very practical focus on what you need to survive teaching, uh, what's taught in the field is being taught for teachers, um, not for philosophers. And uh, there's nothing wrong with teaching it for teachers, but it has lost in many cases its um, intellectual status. It has become blended in with social foundations of education. Uh, and that's sad. I've talked about this with Catherine Elgin, who's mm -hmm. at Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education now. And um, I, I have to say, I'm I'm really sorry that that program didn't survive at Harvard and that uh, actually the field of philosophy of ed is not vibrant in many places around the country these days. Yeah, it's sad. I, just one one more sort of thought about this. Um, uh a lot of the, um, it seems to me at least, you, you may not agree, although I suspect you may, um, uh, a lot of the challenges facing um, students, even at the primary level, um, uh, about how to manage the flow of information that they are inevitably subjected to, um, seem to me to inevitably involve pretty sophisticated philosophical questions, just how to assess uh, reportage, how to deal with testimony, how to deal with conflicting testimony. These are traditional philosophical questions, not only in epistemology, but in ethics and social philosophy and all the rest. Um, it seems that um, uh, a philosophy class um, uh, for teachers uh, that, that deals with these questions, it seems like such a crucial part of, of uh, kids' education these days. 
And I worry that if the, the philosophy of education is not a central part of the curriculum f- for training teachers, that, that gets lost. Am I, am I right to be worried about that? Uh, well, I would agree with you completely. I think um, that the, the issue of uh, evaluating information of having the kind of literacy that you're talking about in uh, dealing with testimony and dealing with uh, w- what it is not worth knowing is the way right. I put it a couple times is an uh, is an art in itself and um, it's an, it's uh, not the same as critical thinking. Uh, critical thinking is certainly involved in it and should be part of the education, I think, but. Um, I I very much agree with you that uh, the sense of what we are, the larger sense of what we're trying to do both individually and collectively with the educational enterprise in which we invest so much time, so much money, um, so much professional training, uh, it, it, it is really uh, a, a sad situation that we are not um, centralizing thought um, about it and broad thinking of the kind that philosophers and critical thinking of the kind that philosophers do. Um, I do take as a, a positive sign the APA's establishment of the uh, Israel Scheffler Award to recognize some publication in philosophy of education. That's a good thing. But uh, it, we have a long way to go to give it the uh, the role I think it deserves. And part of this goes actually to a point in the book, which is that I think um, epistemology has reflected uh, the Reichenbach distinction between the context of discovery and the context of justification. And we have so focused in philosophy on the context of justification. Uh, What are the sources and how do you justify knowledge, as you said, and refute skepticism and so on, that we've left the questions of the acquisition of knowledge and the process of gaining knowledge, including education as an institution, to psychologists, educators, and others, by and large. Great. Well, why don't we pick up there and, and, and talk about the book, because um, there is a, uh, there's a, um, a pretty obvious um, uh, set of concerns that, that drive the book of the kind that you were just mentioning. In fact, the book ends with, and we'll, we'll get to it later in the discussion, the book ends with a, a discussion about the ways in which epistemology as a field within philosophy um, should change or might change uh, in light of um, some of the things that you argue in the book. Um, but why don't we start at the beginning, and can you tell us just a little bit and maybe build on uh, what, what the kind of thing you were just saying, right? How did you get interested in writing a book about ignorance? Um, a, a colleague of mine told a funny joke. I said, oh, I'm reading this book called Understanding Ignorance. I'm going to interview the author for the New Books and Philosophy podcast. Uh, my colleague said, oh, it's a book called uh, Understanding Ignorance. I hope it's a short book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, believe me, when you when you set yourself up to write a whole book on ignorance, <laughs> you, you get many, many such... <laughs> Claims made. Um, uh, I, I've been told that. Uh, uh, how did I decide to whom to dedicate the book? I, as you know, I dedicate it to students and teachers that I've had because they said, "Who would want a book dedicated to them if it was about ignorance?" <laughs> and some someone else had had claimed that 
you know, what well, was obvious, I have expertise in the area, and, <laughs> that's about, and so on and so on. I mean, it's a, <laughs> you take it with a certain shield that you need to, <laughs> you need to have. Um, I, you know, I came to this actually in in a convergence of uh, ideas. Um, for a number of years, I taught a first-year seminar called Secrets and Lies. And that seminar, of course, was an ethics seminar, really, about uh, deception, concealment, and also revelation and confession, and uh, the ethical issues involved. But over the years of teaching it, I became more and more interested in the ways in which secrecy and lying and deception construct ignorance for other people or maintain ignorance for other people, and the advantages that are gained by uh, putting people in a condition of ignorance. And I began to think about that um, in a couple of addresses, turn to philosophical sources to see more about ignorance, and realized that epistemologists really hadn't talked about ignorance very much at all. It was simply, uh, for analytic epistemologists, the denial of the proposition that S knows the P. Mm -hmm. And um, I I was aware, of course, of uh, Nicholas Rescher's book, and it's it's as close as there was to a philosophical treatment that was comprehensive and tried to put ignorance into a place. Um, but it didn't deal with some of the ethical issues uh, and what I would take to be putting it in a slightly broader context of um, human experience. So uh, on the one hand, I thought this was an important issue, but I couldn't find much of a current context for it. Then at the same time, our public discourse was uh, celebrating a culture of ignorance And it became more and more um, obvious that uh, the the traditional concerns about the need to distinguish belief from knowledge uh, were only a part of the issue with ignorance. Willful ignorance, for instance, was a considerable problem. It's become in some quarters a kind of universal diagnosis for everything that's wrong with the world um, put into willful ignorance. So uh, I thought this is an issue that is pressing. It is an issue on which we need a kind of integrated look. Because as I looked around, I did find in many disciplines, the concept was beginning to pop up in papers primarily, in articles that were dealing with individual aspects of it. And these ranged across a wide area of disciplines, from environmental studies and environmental policy, to economics, to women and gender studies, to uh, philosophy itself. I mean, just a broad range, sociology, anthropology, and so on. And um, I thought that I would. I was writing at the time a book uh, on called Learning to Flourish, which is, uh, the subtitle is a philosophical exploration of liberal education. And I thought I would do a chapter on ignorance in this book on education. Well, it became obvious that not only was it a distortion of what was going on in that book, but it was much too large a topic. So that book came out in 2012. 
and uh, and it's taken five years <laughs> to get to get to the point of this book, um, in which I really do try to give a fairly comprehensive exploration. It's not exhaustive. I'd never claim that, but it is a it is an attempt to see ignorance from many different sides. And it's led me to um, think that ignorance in a way has a more rich and more complex structure than knowledge does. And I also think that uh, it has larger, larger implications, which I'm sure we'll talk about, about the uh, enterprise of epistemology itself. Well, wonderful. Um, So one of the, uh, one of the places that you begin um, is uh, with a um, a much uh, maligned um, uh, set of categories that were given to the world by Donald Rumsfeld, um, which uh, I remember, you know, seeing that interview where he laid out the distinction between the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Right. And I remember being, um, perhaps for the only time, I remember being impressed with him because I thought, wow, that was a neat bit of, you know, sort of field epistemology that makes, you know, that makes good sense of uh, three distinct states one might be in, uh, not only in high risk kinds of decisions of the kind that he was describing, but just epistemically, these are different. It's important to to distinguish them. And then instantly he... <laughs> Instantly, he was parodied, and uh, I think that what was worthwhile in the comment was totally lost. Um, so, can you can you tell us a little bit about wh- wh- why you uh, you know th- why you think this is an important taxonomy? Well, I do think it's uh, it's important because uh, and 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 you're right; it's much maligned. Yeah. It it did become a kind of meme in popular culture, and. Uh, it's it, it's often quoted, but not always in a complimentary way. And I think, um, actually, in uh, he had a he had a moment of insight there, which was quite good, uh, as at looking at a meta level as well as the level of knowing itself. So, um, known unknown known knowns are in the traditional gold standard for epistemology. Um, known unknowns um, sometimes have escaped notice, uh, but they are ways of um, dealing with ignorance that we can specify. And it might be we can specify them only at a very broad level, such as I know nothing about um, deltiology. I know I do not know the Polish language. Um, but it also may be quite specific. Uh, I don't know which of these two poems was written before the other. Um, so I can, I, my, my ability to specify the, uh, the ignorance that I have is quite a valuable tool. Um, then, on the other hand, he talks about unknown unknowns. These, of course, are not specifiable. Um, we, we, uh, Nicholas Rescher offered a proof that such exist. Um, 
I don't know that we need a proof. We're always, <laughs> we always you look at human history and you think about what we have, have reason to suspect uh, that we don't know. And uh, there's a lot. Aristotle, um, had a, Aristotle had a snarky comment about proofs for things that are manifest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Right, yes. <laughs> yes. And I suspect that is the case with this. Um, and they bedevil us. I mean, uh, we can't. Uh, we, these. This is an element of ignorance that is unremovable um, in general. Particular elements of ignorance come into our purview. We learn about things that we didn't even know exist and so on and so forth. Um, but that. Um, context in which we work of unknown unknowns is um, not, I think, to be used as Rumsfeld was using it in that press conference as a kind of excuse, um, because someone can always claim that you had responsibility to know it and um, or even to know that you didn't know it and then do something about it. But in many cases, the unknown is unavailable to you even conceptually it's just it would be like blaming aristotle for not knowing about dna um of course there is a fourth element to this which rumsfeld left out and others have uh, eagerly supplied and that's the idea of unknown knowns things that we actually know but we aren't aware that we know or we do not know that we carry that understanding with us. Um, there's varying interpretations of that. Um, uh, Zizek wrote an article, which I talk about in the book, in which he critiqued Rumsfeld, believing that this was a sort of suppressed knowledge, uh, an unconscious knowledge. But it might be also read as a tacit knowledge, uh, knowledge that is um, that we carry, but is not expressible. We might not even recognize it in the in the classic sense that Michael Polanyi discussed. So um, the typology gets enriched by that. And by the way, this is not the only typology we might look toward. Um, we can type ignorance by uh, 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 the way in which we relate to it or its motivation. We can type it by um, whether it's removable or not removable in principle or in practice and so on and so forth. But I think Rumsfeld's, in its clarity, is an obvious place to start. Well, fantastic. So um, you deploy that sort of, um, particularly the distinction between the known uh, unknown and the unknown unknown, um, as you work through um, your own sort of uh, uh, um, uh, typology or maybe topography <laughs> of uh, these sort of four um, what you call images of ignorance. These are uh, uh, d discussions in which you try to tease out sort of uh, different ways in which uh, the concept of ignorance sort of different faces that the concept may have, we might say. Um, and so you, you, um, the, the, the core of the book is devoted to sort of uh, e examining or exploring uh, these four images. Um, they are uh, uh, ignorance as place, ignorance as boundary, ignorance as limit, and ignorance as horizon. Uh, can you walk us through uh, uh, that territory? 
yes, I, I, I think that these um, spatial or place images are um, useful in s- setting out different features of ignorance. Uh, ignorance is a place or state, if you like, uh, tells us that it, it's something we can dwell in. It, it can be a state of mind. It is a predicament. Uh, and um, as you know, I use the uh, contrast between Plato's cave and the Garden of Eden as both being uh, places of ignorance. But I'm also fascinated by the way in which uh, epistemologists have developed structured places of ignorance to use as thought experiments, whether we're talking about uh, the locked room uh, whether uh, we look at uh, Frank Jackson's uh, Mary's Room, mm-hmm. in which uh, she has not had the experience of color um, and then comes out from it and so on. And uh, John, uh, John Rawls, obviously, with a veil of ignorance as a way of establishing conditions of fairness. So uh, we structure places of ignorance to test various things. But ignorance is also the state in which we're born, um, and therefore there is much to explore about the notion of keeping someone in ignorance, um, uh, trying to help them escape from ignorance, uh, the contrast between innocence and ignorance, and so on. But that's a good, I think, starting point for exploring the ideas. Then when you turn to boundary, uh, it's a boundary, uh, there's a boundary that separates the known from the unknown, and the boundary uh, might be thought of as a frontier if our knowledge is advancing, it might be thought of as a a construction, and there is where I think we can talk about um, the ways in which we actually construct or maintain zones of ignorance. Um, and there are a variety of those. I mean, we're not, I'm not just talking about forbidden knowledge, which certainly is one, uh, or uh, willful ignorance in which a, a lot of uh, cycle energy might be devoted to uh, maintaining a barrier ag- against further knowledge. But uh, privacy and secrecy do this. And then I think there are benign forms like uh, rational ignorance in which I simply decide I am not going to learn the next version of some software program. (laughs) Uh, It's not worth my while. Or I might um, uh, use ignorance in a strategic way, the the way in which an attorney does in saying, don't tell me whether you're guilty or not. I don't want to know that. Um, And ignorance in that cases used as an advantage. So the interesting thing about taking ignorance as a boundary, though, is the notion that we might actually map it, um, that we might uh, mark where our ignorance occurs, how far our knowledge goes. And uh, that can be, I think, an interesting tool. The, um, the notion of ignorance as a limit is different um, and there I draw on Kant's distinction between uh, boundaries and limits. And here, w- with a limit, it, it doesn't really point to any territory on the other side. Um, you may uh, exhaust all possible 
knowledge of a particular thing. Um, that is, by the way, I think not possible, but it's the, it's the idea that you come to an end of a series and there is no more. Um, you gain a, a complete collection of something. There just are no more samples to add to the set. So uh, at that point, you have reached a limit. And the notion here is that there are limits to our knowledge that are of the same kind. They might be, they might range from the capacity of the human brain to the uh, lifetime expectancy of a person. Um, but they might also involve conceptual limits. Um, they might involve uh, problems about the past and problems about the future. Things before uh, one is born or one uh, after one dies. And these suggest that um, we work in a finite way <laughs> as finite creatures. And so our ability to uh, know has some inherent limits. Um, and then finally, I think horizon carries some of the aspects of both boundary and limit, but it suggests a perspectival look at ignorance as something that moves with us. Uh, something that is always beyond, that beckons us, that calls us to research and advance and so on. Um, and here's where I find some of the uh, most interesting and in some ways most positive functions of ignorance for us. I think it is the space that uh, narrative requires. Uh, we have to, as we're reading or following a film, we go into the unknown. And it's important in that, that there is that sense of the unknown, uh, that we move, move beyond the horizon. It gives us a sense of possibility. Ignorance becomes a kind of uh, important modal operator when we think of it as a horizon. So those are the those are the images. They're really, um, I, I, I don't claim any sort of uh, uh, a priori structure to them. <laughs> I think they're simply useful in uh, fleshing out some of the dimensions of this idea of ignorance. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree with you that there are all kinds of interesting uh, things that get said in the book about different ways of thinking, the difference between you know what what's going on uh, in the allegory of the cave uh, from um, just to take the more the most sort of radical some of the discussions of ignorance at the, as a horizon as a as a thing to be pursued as um, mm -hmm. as a thing marking or, or signaling a uh, 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 guiding uh, inquiry. Um, so you mentioned in the in your discussion um, uh, of ignorance as boundary um, the idea of mapping ignorance and. Um, this was a, a really interesting, uh, among many interesting parts of the book, this was one that really uh, caught my attention, this idea that um, uh, that some researchers have actually put into practice of, of, of trying to um, create visual map-like representations of the boundary between what's known and what's not known as a, as a kind of research and pedagogical tool. Can you tell us a little bit about this practice? Yes. Um, uh you're right. The idea here is that um, where I can specify the boundary of my knowledge, I can also map my ignorance. 
and indeed um, the uh, the notion of of old maps that had terra incognita suggest this notion that we can indicate um, and in, indicate sometimes in relation to things that are known, so we can place it in effect in a conceptual map. Um, things that we do not know. And uh, it's especially important if they're things that we desire to know and that would be useful for us to know. So uh, the technique is really one. Uh, it's been applied, uh, I think, most extensively in the field of medical training. Um, Arizona State has an actual program it involves uh, summer programs and there's a curriculum and uh, you can do professional uh, continuing education and that takes you there for medical practitioners and it is in medical ignorance. And the idea is that it helps both in uh, dealing with individual cases, uh, individual patients, but also in, in uh, pursuing medical research. If you can look at what you know about the case or the area that you're researching and articulate what it is you don't know. And the process of articulating what you don't know establishes a kind of research agenda, uh, an agenda for inquiry. Um, I think it can function in many other fields than this. Um, and I think it's an interesting exercise pedagogically to do with students to say, okay, you want to write about, um, I'm teaching a class right now on emotion, so let's say I uh, have a student who's writing about the phenomenon of, of emotional contagion. Um, I might uh, say to that student, okay, well, here's, there's, your, there's your basis of your paper, what you know about emotional contagion, what, you don't know, what don't you know that might enhance this paper? And maybe what you don't know is, um, what's the difference between emotional contagion in animals and humans? What is the um, uh, relation between emotional contagion and empathy? And in this case, working with a student, it's what one personally does not know. And in research, uh, it's what we don't know in general. So uh, I think the exercise, and it can be done with individuals or a group, of getting a list of these things um, and I'm sure, by the way, that some version of this goes on in uh, police detective work as well, um, that it may not be given this title, Mapping Ignorance, but the notion of a, uh, of a whiteboard on which you put what you know um, might well include the question marks of what you don't know that you need to find, you need to find out in that case. And, of course, these are, all, these are exercises of... Uh, known unknowns, you may make them explicit, you may come to realize them as you get engaged in this discussion. All you can do for the un unknown unknowns is put a little marker and say, and of course they're those. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it's like having a little place on your map where you can say, they're unknown unknowns. But other than that, um, and these are not always at the frontier, if I can put it that way. You might find that there are um, the sinkholes within your <laughs> within your knowledge that there are uh, things that at the beginning you thought you knew but now begin to open up within your your sphere of knowledge and you find oh my word we 
we really don't know that. Um, and that's, a, I think, a very valuable exercise. Sure. And I suppose that um, maybe in certain contexts, um, uh, explicitly engaging in an exercise that um, where, where the point of the exercise is to admit one's ignorance um, which is something that I think in all kinds of contexts, you know, we're, 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 uh, uh, we're, we're, we're trained or acclimated to never admit that you don't know something right. um, where it looks like, you know, there are all kinds of contexts pedagogically and otherwise where um, the point of the exercise, if, if you sort of, um, if you succeed at the exercise, if you come up with new things that you don't know, um, can have all kinds of, it seems to me, not only uh, epistemic uh, benefits, but, um, um, you know, moral character, benefits to one's moral character, right? Yes, exactly. The uh, the people who practice this at Arizona State talk about the uh, um, the reduction of arrogance on the part of practitioners and uh, the the inculcation of an attitude of intellectual humility in approaching their tasks. And I think that uh, being able to to value the ability to point to ignorance that you have is an advance. It's a, it, it, it is a kind of intellectual virtue. Excellent. That sounds right to me um, <laughs> for what that's worth. Um, so it, uh, ignorance is here to stay, obviously. Um, certainly if we're talking particularly about um, ignorance in uh, – uh, in its guise as uh, as a boundary, as a horizon, that is, a, there might be certain forms of ignorance that um, uh, can't be eliminated. It's just part of uh, 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 what w- w- it's it's a necessary part of the intellectual enterprise, perhaps. Um, but um, and some versions, some kinds of ignorance, I take it, or ignorance of certain kinds of things, is in no way a threat or a danger or a failing. Um, but some forms of ignorance are uh, uh, failings, and some are dangerous and threatening. Um, so you've got a discussion in the book of different strategies or different ways in which we might try to manage ignorance. Can you tell us a little bit about that chapter? Yes. Um, I think management is required when we're dealing with uh, ignorance that we cannot resolve in practice. And um, we've invented all kinds of tools for this, um, not just intellectual tools, but institutions to help us in practical needs when we have ignorance. Uh, two examples I use in the book, and of course they're related. One is the insurance industry, which is uh, much studied by economists as an example of uh, the way a market can deal with uncertainty. And uh, no doubt, uh, insurance has flourished because it shares the risk of uh, the error, the unexpected, uh, the problems that can come from uh, uncertainty, from what we don't know about future events. The, um, the interesting thing to me is that the, the strategies to manage ignorance have uh, – uh, only a few ways they can work. One is to uh, share the risk. Uh, one is to try to reduce the cost of the damage of not knowing. Uh, one is, of course, to plan for the worst or to prepare various kinds of action plans. And then um, we might also think about 
ways in which we can try to cash our ignorance out in a form that is something like knowledge. And that is one of our, I think, major intellectual achievements in managing ignorance, and that's the rise of probability theory. Uh, probability theory in its many different varieties um, and many different interpretations, uh, whether it's uh, statistical uh, or, or a purist mathematical of the kind you might use with dice and so on, these different forms of probability are ways of giving us general knowledge without knowledge of the particulars. And we don't know what the next role of the dice may be, but we know what they should be over time. And um, I've raised questions, as you know, in this in this book about um, the ways in which probability masks ignorance. And um, at one point, I've taken on the National Weather Service for <laughs> uh, its account of what a twenty percent chance of rain tomorrow really means, um, and. I find that in all of these cases of probability theory, they have a practical benefit that sits on top of theoretically and philosophically interesting problems. Um, but they represent an attempt to manage ignorance by um, cashing out what knowledge we can gain of ignorant particulars in a general form. And that's an interesting strategy. So, you know, we've, we're clever about these things. Um, and uh, I think when you can't, when the ignorance is not revocable, then uh, management seems to be a really w good way to go. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the discussion of the 20% um, the chance of rain um, yeah. was... Uh, was in some ways um, so part of the discussion there is that you 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 outline you catalog some of the popular um, some of the interpretations uh, that are popular among uh, uh, people who watch uh, you know the the, the weather forecast right. on the news right. like what you know apparently we've people have been asked, what does it mean when the weather forecaster says there's a 20% chance of rain? And the range of opinions about what the statement means was, um, uh, was interesting and fascinating and, and terrifying in, 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 in all kinds of respects. Um, uh, uh, that, um, uh, there seems to be great variation. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, it, it, they range from people who believe it means that, uh, it will rain over 20% of a given area right. uh, to people who believe that 20% uh, of the weather forecasters think it will rain, <laughs> presumably with 100% certainty. I mean, it's, uh, they were all over the map. And this originally came out of an NPR survey of listeners, which was, I thought, hilarious and startling in its outcome. But then I have to tell you, when I actually looked at the formal definition that the National Weather Service gave, which uh, I expected to be a statistical one based on uh, similar days in the past with similar weather patterns and so on. Uh, and it didn't have any of that. It had to do with percentage of area and, this, and the degree of confidence 
of weather forecasters. So uh, I was really taken taken aback by that. And in the end, I'm not sure we know what we mean by 20 percent. Yeah, that was that was that was the outcome. That that was the conclusion I drew too. Because I I I I take it now quite naively thought like you did that oh 20% chance of rain means something about the likelihood of rain given the conditions that we have reason to expect are going to obtain in a particular area and then once you see that the definition has to do with the expectations or the degree of confidence of the forecaster like I, I, you know being trained in being trained in meteorology doesn't make one a good um introspector of one's degree of um dox, <laughs> no. you know, dox, of certitude right i mean sort of like, that doesn't mean that you're good at estimating even your own you know sort of degree of belief i, I so yeah i i <laughs> yeah, very rarely I, I, do i, I have moments yeah, very yeah, rarely I, do I have moments where I th- want to throw a, a book across the room. But I was like, oh, my God, this wasn't your fault, of course. I was like, I can't believe this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I have a colleague. I kept telling him, you have got to look at this because he teaches probability. And I said, you have to look at this official thing. And he he, he finally did look at it, and he now uses it in his class <laughs> as a teaching example um, because it is um, – it's it's really quite amazing, both what people think and then what apparently officials think <laughs> that have the most precise account. So maybe in this case, we're I mean, uh, uh, the best thing you can say is it's better to carry an umbrella if they say there's a 90 percent chance than a 20 percent chance. <laughs> uh, right. Um, so why don't we um, so the book ends, as I mentioned earlier, the book ends with a um, with a with a, a chapter d- discussing um, some of the ways in which um the field, the academic field within philosophy known as epistemology um, might change uh, in light of um, uh, the uh, in light of a uh, the decision or the, the the trend to, as you have done, give ignorance a more central place in our thinking about the uh, standard uh, um, epistemic phenomena, you know, belief, knowledge, reason, evidence, and all the rest. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about how uh, you think that sort of uh, uh, ignorance-centric, uh, <laughs> if we yes. can coin a term, uh, 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 approach to epistemology might um, might change that, that field in, in, in ways that uh, you think are positive? Well, I think the um, uh, there are some changes – or variations in epistemology in recent years that uh, give space to think about ignorance. Uh, They haven't done it very much yet, but it's very helpful. Traditional epistemology uh, is focused on the structure of knowledge and and its justification and so on. And um, ignorance is therefore simply uh, the denial of knowledge. that seems to me too abrupt and blank. Um, once you realize, let's say there are three or four now conditions traditionally accepted for uh, knowing something, uh, the failure to have any one of those or any combination of those represents a form of ignorance. So there are more forms of ignorance than there are there and there is a form of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, uh, I've been in dialogue with a Dutch philosopher, Rick Peels, who has a different view of ignorance. He thinks that ignorance is simply the lack of true belief and that the justification is not in question here, nor are things like Gettier conditions and uh, luck and other factors that Mm -hmm. may affect. Um, But he does agree that... uh, we would then, if we take that and we confine ignorance just to that failure, uh, a failure of true belief, we have to have some other names for the other kinds of failures, and we don't have those names now. I prefer to think of them all as forms of ignorance because they're interconnected mm-hmm. and because uh, writing them, correcting them, adds to knowledge. Um, so I think... Uh, we start with a notion that uh, by simply looking at ignorance as the denial of a proposition, we're missing out on a richer structure. Then I think traditional epistemology has been focused on the individual learner, uh, the person who comes to know, and, um, and the knowledge that individual has or the lack of knowledge that person has. Um, the social epistemology movement that has introduced us to epistemic communities in which people share knowledge, testimony, have different roles. That's the field in which lying and deception comes into play and so on. And uh, I think as soon as you open that up, you can then begin to talk about the trafficking in knowledge and ignorance that goes on. It's not simply as it is with the individual learner, uh, uh, individual knower, a state you can escape from. Um, I also think that the uh, Hans Reichenbach distinction between the context of justification and the context of discovery, although I think in some ways Gettier with the various conditions chipped away at how you got your knowledge – which comes more out of the context of discovery. I think, I think we're learning that it's not good to separate those two, that we need to link them. And once we link them, again, you've opened up space to talk about the interaction between ignorance and knowledge, the way in which more knowledge opens up areas of known unknowns, new ignorance that you were previously were unknown unknowns. So what I like to focus on uh, and what I believe uh, epistemology should come to is a focus, central focus on the interaction between knowledge and ignorance. Um, I'm, I don't put myself exactly in the camp of the people who are using the term agnotology who want to talk about ignorance studies because I think that risks separating it from knowledge, mm-hmm. although it may be that at this stage we have to emphasize the role of ignorance. Um, I would rather see us look at, look at the dynamic interaction, and I think we can, we can learn much more from that. Um, I think virtue epistemology is another current movement which takes seriously the context of discovery mm-hmm. um, and sees it as uh, a, a proper sphere for at least certain aspects of epistemology. 
And again, once you open up virtue epistemology, then you can talk about ways in which uh, ignorance may or may not function in uh, our ability to learn. Uh, So uh, if someone um, is, let's say, uh, deprived of a sphere of knowledge because Uh, corporations have suppressed the research, government has suppressed the research, or uh, willful ignorance has kept them from it. We can talk about then that the way that ignorance functions in a different way. It functions very importantly, epistemically. There are some people who argue there are virtues of ignorance. Um, Julia Driver, yeah. Yeah, Julia Driver, uh, Jacques Rancière talks about uh, the ignorant schoolmaster and ignorance as a virtue in teaching. Um, I haven't bought into that very much, but I do think that recognizing uh, one's ignorance, allowing a role for it, and so on, these are really important intellectual virtues. Well, fantastic, Dan. You've been um, generous with your time, and it's been it's been really wonderful talking about the book, which uh, is, is is just a fantastic uh, fantastic read. Um, Thank you. Uh, so, to to just uh, to wrap things up, um, so uh, you've 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 written a fabulous book about ignorance. Um, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what what what's next on the horizon for you? <laughs> well, um, I. I have a book that is um, under contract with Broadview Press, but it's a a very different sort of book. This is an ethics book, a a text in ethics, which I nevertheless hope makes some um, original contributions. Um, It uh, one of the reviewers um, actually liked it so much that they are pilot testing it for me this spring. And we're going through the uh, – I'm, I'm polishing up things to send so that it can be printed in a proper form and used in class in the, uh, in the spring. And then uh, based on that, I'll revise that and, and put that out. But that was a, is a sort of separate line. I'm very committed to that, but I uh, have been thinking about what follows this ignorance book. Um, I teach a course in the philosophy of color, and I'm taken by the fact that I think uh, that's another field of epistemology that has become very, very technical, Mm -hmm. and that it would be nice to, to take a different look at. I don't think I'm going to do that. What is attract? I mean, I don't think I'm going to do it at least now. What is attracting me is the notion of thinking about epistemology as a um, as a values oriented discipline sure. um, uh, in which uh, parallel in a sense to ethics and uh, in which truth um, but other kinds of values might be in play um, traditionally truth is the only value in epistemology. But as we all know, epistemology, when it's written, tends to be more than descriptive about what knowledge is. It tends to be regulative or normative about what genuine knowledge is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has that normative impact. 
So if you add ignorance into the question and you begin to look at their interactions, then there may be uh, interesting questions about what epistemology would look like if, if we conceived of it as a values-oriented field. And um, I'm not sure there's anything there yet, but that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's very exciting. You know, if, uh, just a when I first started graduate work in philosophy, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked to learn that um, uh, that epistemology wasn't a normative part of the field. I, I, it always had struck me as um, every bit as normative as what was being taught in, my, in the ethics classes I had as an undergraduate. And um, when I took my graduate seminar in epistemology, it was it was purely descriptive, and I, I, it, it struck me as just an odd sort of um, disfiguring of uh, yes. what intuitively seemed to me so obvious that, you know, when we're doing epistemology, we're talking about cognitive norms. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. So that all sounds, uh, oh, that sounds wonderful. I'll keep an eye out uh, for that. Um, but for now, I just, Dan, thank you so much uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Oh, thank you very much, Bob. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us for our discussion. Again, uh, we've been talking to uh, Dan Nicola. His new book is called um, Understanding Ignorance. It's published by MIT Press. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.